Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Great Women in Compliance, sponsored by Corporate Compliance Insights and hosted by the Compliance Podcast Network. I'm Hema Lomax. I'm happy to tell you we have a real treat in store for you today. Our guest, Katanjali Sakuja, is here to share her experiences in working with the United Nations across different countries. We will also hear how she's taken her diplomatic skills and how that experience has had a profound impact on her compliance career. Katanjali served as head of compliance at Switzer and as a fractional CCO and so much more that we're going to learn about today. Katanjali, a huge welcome to the show. I'm so happy that we get to spend some time here together today. Thank you so much, Hema, for having me. It's a true pleasure and an honor. And I think I have to publicly admit, if it's already not known, that I'm a fangirl of Gwick. Oh, I've always been a fangirl of Gwick too. So we've got lots in common. And I think we're going to find out uh, as the as the podcast goes on just how much we've got in common. But let's start with you. Before we get into your career, I really wanted to ask you, I've been dying to ask you, why are you called the dancing lawyer? <laughs> I think... Embracing my dancing lawyer persona reflects a little bit of my belief in both balance and joy. Dancing is uh, a passion outside of my work life, and it mirrors a little the vibrancy, the creativity, the agility, the interactions that I have with stakeholders in my work life. Just as every dance has its unique rhythm and movement, so does my work in compliance, which demands a tailored approach, right? I find that using creativity, energy into my work not only enhances my compliance skills, but also fosters that positive collaborative atmosphere in my dance classes. I'm not formally trained in dance. I teach it for fun and it allows me to share my culture, my interest with others. And I think it's important that we embrace our passions and apply our skills in different ways that lead to extraordinary and rewarding discoveries like synergy that I found between dance and compliance. Wow, Gitanjali, my goodness. I thought I was just going to get to sign up to your dance classes and do maybe some Bollywood moves, but my goodness, you're so right. The analogy is so perfect. And in fact, it makes me think of the the phrase dance like nobody's watching. Um, Absolutely. Certainly resonates with me in terms of ethics and compliance. Tell us a little bit about your ethics and compliance career and where you are today. Sure. My early careers were spent a bit in my search for a purpose in law. I knew I wanted to be a lawyer from when I was young. I was that kid who had a lot of opinions on a lot of things. And just because everybody was doing something a certain way for me didn't always seem that it needed to be okay, right? I had a lot of questions, but I had an appreciation for the importance of rules And from a young age, I was fascinated by multilateral organizations like the UN and dreamt of having this big career negotiating peace and security. Before I went to law school, I actually worked for one of the big four accounting firms. And I was clear I didn't want to go that traditional route of working in a law firm. So I forged a different path for myself into the UN. Very nice. That was... Go ahead. Yeah. That was actually the beginning of my international career. And I worked at 
the ILO, UNDP, at UNICEF, and across those organizations. I was in the legal operations partnership roles where I had a charge to impact internal policies to build governance frameworks from the ground up, but also to speed up their adoption and to lead multi-stakeholder solutions to global problems. All of that with the long-term vision to improving compliance and sustainability. It's so fascinating. Again, just another thing we have in common. I always wanted to work at the UN when I was little as well. And one of my first professional jobs was at the United Nations. So I totally empathise with what you've said. Let me just tie it back to why you went to law school then. What? How, how did law school help you with that? So... Law school, I think for me, gave the framework in terms of how we compose our arguments, how we approach policies, how we try to make them adaptive to our environments in which we work in. Particularly for me, I found making that leap then into the UN, particularly on a a global stage, that global perspective that I gained was invaluable to me, particularly as you're navigating complex international dynamics that require you to be adaptable and to make those quick pivots, right? Collaboration, effective communications, also at the core. You're working with your stakeholders from varied backgrounds, and that's a means to achieve problem solving, right? Diplomacy kind of becomes second nature because you've got nuanced negotiations, which are crucial for advancement. And I think most important, pragmatism, humility, it's essential when you're trying to ensure that your organization, whether it's the UN or any other organization, to adhere to international standards or the standards that apply to their universe. And in the UN, you've got these ambitious missions to shape a better world. So I think these lessons that I've taken away from law school and my career in the UN have been instrumental to defining my approach to work in legal and compliance. So many parallel lessons there. You've talked about problem solving and diplomacy. Let's just pause on problem solving for a second. That's obviously one thing we're all thinking of doing every day. It's part of our daily work as a compliance professional. And one intriguing thing I've heard you say is that you operate from an assumption that all wicked problems can be solved. Tell me about that. It's very intriguing. Absolutely. I think the greatest place that I've been able to have impact and and, uh, truly find success is Taking the time to understand what it is that your business, your stakeholders, what is it that they want, right? That time and effort that you get to understand the intricacies of the business, that's what actually helps me find that yes. And I think that's a key ingredient that leads to that creativity around practical and accountable solutions with your business partners. I think trying to be that creative sort of integrator and to find common ground that helps you also safeguard your interest is really where the secret comes into play. That's the real dance, isn't it? I love that you say finding that dance and doing the intricate balancing of protecting the company, but also moving forward. I know I'm getting a vision of myself being the dancer, (laughs) helping choreograph that, that melody. That's beautiful. I love that so much. And then we talked about diplomacy as well. Let's dig a little deeper there. What I like to call the art of diplomacy. Tell us more about that in the UN. What, What skills did you need in terms of diplomacy to work at the United Nations first? 
Absolutely. So one, I think I, I just like to set the stage for what it's like to operate in the UN, right? The UN is where you've got a humanitarian or a development mission to alleviate whether it's poverty or to ensure food security amongst uh, a number of other attributes. And in the UN, you take on risks because you're also working in riskier markets. That's the true mission. Yeah. And you can't shy away from risk. And because of that, you have to look at integrity risks very differently and understand at the end of the day, you're the advisor and management and your leadership can decide to take risk because the development impact is more important. For example, during a, a conflict, when you're trying to find a pathway to restore power and electricity to support the population that's on the ground, you have to find a way. So you're really trying to find solutions in the middle of civil strife, in natural disasters, global shortages. You're juggling the competing demands of your stakeholders. You have to keep projects and programs running. And I think diplomacy is very much comprised of a number of skills. It's not one thing in particular. You've got your informational skills in which you need to determine how to approach the situation. You've got your relational skills, what's required to successfully work with others. And you've got your operational skills, what's required to take action. Yeah. So these skills, I think they're practiced very much and they're acquired over a lifetime of practice. And they're definitely not limited to ambassadors or, in my experience, to international civil servants. And I think the key to, to your question is very much you can't come in hot to situations. Otherwise, you're perceived as a wrecking ball or the police, which is the, the farthest thing from what you want to try to be, right? You want to remain focused on building relationships. You want people to feel comfortable with you, to truly share their concerns with you, and most important for you to understand what it is that your business wants to do and why. And it's a little bit like, you have to wield and use your influence without having any authority. And that's the real game. Oh, so much there to unpack. Let's just talk about what you just said, uh, wielding influence where you don't have authority. How do you get a seat at the table when you don't have the influence and authority and you have the responsibility to help solve those problems? I think it's, I think it's very much diplomacy being this tool, this skill, this attitude, this personal tribute, this knowledge, this respect, this ex it's the amalgamation of experiences packed into one. And when particularly in compliance, where you have to articulate ideas and you have to navigate intricate conversations, diplomacy is showing up right? In many more ways than I think that we might truly call it by its name or we call it something else. So when you are talking to a wide array of different people inside or outside your organization, particularly to gain a seat, it's about those meaningful connections that you have to, to start with. And I think truly having those meaningful connections, it's you can't have effective sort of diplomacy without, right? And you can't protect those interests on either side of the conversation, again, if you don't have those relationships that you take that time to build and to cultivate and to nurture. 
You mentioned the concept of the wrecking ball. I can see, I can empathize that when you're feeling righteous and you're feeling like you're trying to do the right thing and it's difficult, you might come in as a wrecking ball. You might even wreck those relationships that you've you've built because you feel so strongly about something. So teach me, tell us, how do you handle that? You talked about dealing with war and and getting power and and to to people during war or poverty. How do you emotionally detach or, or do you emotionally detach from the outcome when you're trying to solve those problems? I think that's a great question. There is an element, I think you have to take a step back and and realize that the world is a complex place to to solve, right? To all of its challenges. So definitely you have to separate yourself from what it is that needs to get done and personally how you feel and what you're trying to achieve. I think the greatest place where I've been able to succeed and to achieve collaboration on the global stage is really to find those places, those tangible points that appeal and resonate to people to understand what it is that we're trying to do. What are you trying to bring as a solution from your organization? What is it that we're trying to support for our beneficiaries at the end of the day? Okay, what is it that we can do together. It's a matter of achieving and celebrating progress, not necessarily perfection in terms of a solution, right? Things like world peace and security, progress, change management, cultural transformations, any sort of arduous and laborious process that we engage in our day-to-day as compliance professionals, they're a long game. You don't claim the job to be done overnight, and it's definitely not zero sum. And when you come in with polar opposites, that it has to be this way or that way, I don't think that you ever manage to achieve anything on either side. So the goal for me very much is to come in and try to take one step forward together to find that yes, right? To find uh, that common place that we can move forward with. I'm just so inspired by what you're saying, that the idea of the journey, the forward momentum, you've talked about how you show up, but also how you bring others along. And you've also talked about these, I'm going to use your words again, wicked problems, these really magnificent, huge, long game problems. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I find most challenging in our work is um, defeating the hopelessness that people that have come before us might have about it. We're not the first to raise or talk about their problems and we won't be the last. Mm-hmm. And people we're trying to raise and talk about those problems with may have looked this in the face and given up long ago. So can I ask you this? I know we didn't plan these questions, but can I ask you, how do you inspire people to come along on these wicked problems and the journey to solve them? I think it goes again, very much to understanding what it is that your business or your stakeholders want to do right? When they show up with passion to want to achieve something, whether it's a street strategic growth, a setting up shop in a new and emerging market or an acquisition, right? What is it that's driving? What's that motivation? And showing up to share that motivation with them as well, too. I think as, as compliance, I know we have painted this long-standing picture of being this department of no, but I think in my career, I've used that maybe fewer than the the digits I have on one hand. So it's very much that uh, when you understand that passion, that motivation, and you want to be part of it, and I think showing up to your business that I want to help you get there. How do we do this? How do we do this together? 
This is great stuff. Okay, so let's do this. Let's focus on the key tenets of your diplomatic practice. Because I know, you know what we're going to do after this? We're going to transfer this to your ethics and compliance practice. So for our listeners, let's let's see if we can't pin these down. What would you say the key tenets are of your diplomatic practice, whether at the UN or, or in your ethics work? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think at the heart of it, I have three simple sort of tenets. One, I think diplomacy is very much that art and practice of building and maintaining relationships. And, and I'm going to use that word over and over again. It's about relationships. Two, I would say, I don't care how bad the feedback is, the prognosis, the assessment, the news, whatever it is that you have to deliver, you treat people with respect and you motivate them, not with fear, but with respect. And that's a little bit what we just touched on in terms of finding that passion that your business comes to you to help them get from point A to point B. And I think, again, very much to the point of you want to celebrate progress again. It's not being fixated on perfection. In compliance, we may have our eyes, our OKRs, or something that we want to achieve, right? And it may not necessarily go to T. And I think that is something that you also need to detach from, that focus around perfection and look at true progress. We're in the business of changing mindsets and behavior, and that's very much the long game. And if you're not going to celebrate that progress, it's a much harder game that you end up playing. I love these superpowers of diplomacy that you are exhibiting and sharing with us. And may we all be able to learn from this and apply it because I think you're right. It's just so powerful um, in our work. And it's just really um, inspiring me personally to think differently about how I show up as well and how I'm going to bring people along. Um, gosh, I'm a little bit speechless. It's really good. <laughs> good. Very good stuff. Another masterclass for our listeners and myself too. Okay, let's see. I, I think another thing we have in common is that we're daughters of immigrants. I'm really fascinated to see this. these superpowers. How did you develop them? And are they tied to your earlier experiences? Absolutely. And I love the question. I think very much early childhood experiences largely inform who we become and what we end up doing. And for me, as a daughter of immigrants, this is hasn't been true as much as I can credit my success and risks to my upbringing. Throughout my childhood and adolescent years, I was exposed to a variety of communities and countries due to my parents' own adventure-seeking appetite. I was trying to think of the this saying where the is it the apple doesn't fall far from the the tree, right? What I learned from different traditions, the food, culture, and the company that my parents kept and the countries that we visited, I learned from people of diverse backgrounds and saw life and saw so much good through multiple lenses. And all of my roles, I've wanted to have influence, but for good. Yeah, I strive to be that kind of person, someone who in the business team asks, hey, did anybody talk to Gitanjali about this? And if they say, oh, if we get her take, our strategy is sound because I made that connection. I enjoy developing relationships that end up being beneficial for others. To me, that's what power and influence get you. Being in the rooms that I've been privileged to be in and amongst the people who have trusted me, their actual ability to operate their business and to find with them that yes. And so whatever I end up doing next, I want to keep pushing myself towards that goal. 
of having that ability to leverage relationships and use compliance as a force for good. I'm sure many of our listeners are empathized with that knowledge that we should be having influence and we should be have, using our power. What was it that took you from knowing you wanted to leverage influence for good and being able to? Talk to us about that transfer from knowing you wanted to actually getting in those rooms at those tables and taking leadership roles as you did. I don't think it was so much about knowing and utilizing. I think it's a bit more subtle in in terms of how it shows up, right? And to be perfectly honest, I think it, it came to me more recently in someone actually showing to me that this is your superpower, you have been able to wield influence. In my last role, one of the parting notes that I received from a senior leader was an acknowledgement of rarely is there one person that has a, that leaves a mark on an organization that has taken it from a position of being good to being better and achieving a sort of mindset shift. And they remarked how I helped make that happen. That's a tremendous accomplishment. I think a a lifelong accolade that I didn't think I was going to achieve at this stage. So sometimes it's not knowing truly that you have the superpower, but uh, hearing from others and how others see you as well. So it's something that I have taken Now that I know that skill, a little bit like how a superhero learns about uh, the effects of kryptonite and what they can do uh, and what you do with that and how you want to utilize that in the communities that you create. I'm so thrilled that you moved colleagues to give you that affirmation. And I'd like to double down on that and say, I see it too. I see it in you. I see the superpower. It won't surprise you that I'm trying to get you to bottle the secret sauce for myself and our listeners. Now that you're sure and, and you've had the affirmation that you've got it, please do find a way to bottle that. Maybe write a book for us, do something. <laughs> because I see, I just see how powerful this is. We're talking about a UN career. We're talking about a career in ethics and compliance, but it's powerful in life generally. We can recognize our powers and leverage them for good. Gosh, again, what a world that would be if everyone felt equipped to do that. So thank you for leading the way there. And as I said, I'll be coming back to you for the write-up of the secret sauce <laughs> when you've had a time to think about it, for sure. Let's, let's stay in this in space for a minute. Let's pivot to your role as a leader and a woman of colour. What triumphs can you share there? You obviously, you've headed up a, a compliance department. You've shown leadership in many of your roles. Tell mm-hmm. us about your triumphs and maybe any inevitable challenges that you've faced and how you've overcome those. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think as being both a woman and a woman of color, I have a little bit that double whammy, right? Wherever I've lived and landed, I could be mistakenly viewed as being arrogant more easily. And rather fighting against that, I had to adapt to it. And it goes back a little bit to diplomacy really being a lifelong practice, accepting that people's biases won't change or that I won't be able to change them has has really been an important growth edge for me. And I know that there are people that believe that women should take on a softer touch. I I'm the first to admit I've heard many times that I could benefit from smiling more. Mm -hmm. And I realized that it's early on that it was unfair, but I knew that confidence can often be taken in the wrong way. The way that I've 
tried to ensure to overcome or to address it is when I approach brainstorms or I approach meetings with colleagues, I ask questions rather than coming in and telling people what to do. It was a little bit like what I mentioned about not coming in hot or being a, a wrecking ball, right? And as I progressed, I think, into various leadership roles, I realized it it really is my uniqueness and it's my lived experiences that brings the true value to my work. And I want to be that example for women of color and to encourage them to be themselves and let them know that feeling vulnerable and being judged is how you show up. It's okay. Mm-hmm. There are going to be times when you're going to be hard on yourself and others are going to be hard on you and you're going to feel uncertain about certain decisions. But I think it's very important to find a community of friends and supporters who you can trust for guidance and to show you, I think, what your superpowers are, just like how a friend showed me what mine were. Wow. I'm hearing from you. Sometimes you just need to embrace the uncertainty and don't let the insecurities fill your head and stop you from from trying again to solve those wicked problems. Again, I empathize massively with that. I, I think of many times where I was focused on not showing up too much, making myself smaller, making sure I knew my place, making sure I assimilated that would be maybe two or three steps back. And then I'd go two or four steps forward and show up mm-hmm. too much. And certainly that dance, yes, another dance, can be distracting from the actual problem, right? Again, you're in your head. So I love to hear how you've navigated that, recognized it, embraced the uncertainty and not let it get the best of you. It's, again, very inspiring and practical, I think, too, for those of us that might be navigating that space constantly. Absolutely. Um, and I also wanted just to underline what you said about the coaching questions. I'm a great fan, again, figured this out late in life, of curious coaching questions, <laughs> mm-hmm. how you can get an awful lot done there in order to, again, back to your other moment, your comments another moment to go about bringing people along a journey and mm-hmm. making sure we co-create those answers to those solutions. I'm just picking out a few things that you said, but I'm so grateful this is recorded for our listeners. We can go back, as I said, this is so important that we, we think together about how we navigate those spaces. Mm-hmm. As you quite rightly said, the together piece means make sure you are together with others that are thinking together and form that community. I know in my last episode when I interviewed Haley Tzeski at the start of the year, we talked about building a community and paying it forward. And she mentioned how valuable the DC Area Compliance Meetup Group was. And I know that's something you organised. So tell us a little bit more about why you set up a meetup group for DC Area Compliance Professionals. Absolutely. So I must admit, I think the origination of these socials was purely selfish for me. I was new to DC. I was looking for a space. This was also coming out of the pandemic and looking for opportunities where people were convening together. There were no shortage. And as we see uh, still today for meetings that convene virtually. And I wanted to meet people in person. I wanted to be in intimate, cozy settings for conversations to take place. I wanted a safe place where it didn't need to necessarily be knowledge-oriented or deep into you know what we do in our work lives, but also to showcase we are so much more 
than what we bring to work, right? Who our personalities are and whatever your your social socializing sort of personality is made up of, whether you're an introvert, an extrovert, or a mix to both, that these socials could be that safe place for you to come to. So started a these socials to be held every other month in the DC and in the Virginia, Maryland areas. We are on our third event soon. The idea is to continue to hold these every other month. And some will have uh, special themes. The one that we held in December had a holiday theme filled with compliance themed cocktails, with games, with holiday songs. So again, as compliance uh, professionals, we are fun people. And I think, again, in our business and in our organizations, we're not seen that way. So really wanted to have this community where others could offload, take their superhero compliance capes off and have a little bit of fun getting to know their peers. I love that. And you heard it here first, listeners. Compliance people are fun. Absolutely. <laughs> true. I can vouch for that. Uh, and I, yeah, look, thank you for doing that. I'm obviously going to be an avid member of that group, having moved back to this area. I appreciate you creating that space for us. I also want to say you mentioned people might not feel comfortable with the socializing. We understand that. But look, mm-hmm. you said to our listeners that you need it too. Just by showing up, they're creating that community for people like you to go exercise your superpowers. And while you might take your cape off on coming in, we all help each other put the capes back on as you leave. I think that's absolutely a picture I've got in my mind of that. Yeah, I encourage people, if you're not in this area, speak to Katanjali about how she did it and maybe set one up in your area. We love to find ways for the GWIC community and, and friends and allies to, to get together and support each other. Because some of the secret sauce and superpowers you've talked about today, I think, as you said, quite rightly, are because you've been able to commune in this way and find your community. Absolutely. I love that. Absolutely. Now, you're paying it forward, obviously, in a beautiful way by creating this community and sharing your stories with us today. I also know that you take mentorship very seriously. I'd love to hear a bit more about the, the Streetwise program that you serve as a mentor for. Absolutely. And I think also just taking from what the GWIC community does for each other, right? This ability to pay it forward, to hold that door open, to pull others up behind us as we go along. And this nonprofit that I work with, Streetwise Partners, my work with them is focused really on mentoring and improving outcomes for people from underrepresented communities. We host two cohorts a year where we go through substantive job search skills and all of the intangibles that you and I have had to learn through hard knocks over time, right? And if I had to stumble and step on landmines, I think it's important that we make sure that the people coming up behind us don't have to make some of those same mistakes. And taking that time out to mentor younger professionals especially women, I think is a valuable asset and a great way to give time back. And I think there's really no substitute for kindness. It costs you nothing. And again, relationships for me, they're everything. It makes me think I've got two little girls and I want to be as an old woman saying, gosh, those children have it so much easier than I did, but also be a part of making sure they have it so much easier than we did. And Mm -hmm. so that sentiment of the landmines and how you've navigated them and how you can help the those coming after you to understand mm-hmm. what they are and do even more and have even a greater impact 
makes me think that the superhero is not a person or a concept. It's a generational movement. And Sam's doing your part, not only to learn your piece, but to make sure that we equip those coming after us with it. So again, putting on capes of those that come after us. I love Absolutely. That. Really love that. Wow. As I've said, I love spending time with the GWIT community and, and so grateful to spend time and fellowship with you now here. That's something for me that is a wellness issue. It's something mm-hmm. that's really important. So beyond the community, and I know the relationships are the most important part of that for you. Mm-hmm. What tips do you have for compliance professionals who may feel in need of some wellness balance in their lives? I would say when you are juggling the weight of the world on your shoulders, it's very important to ensure that you do have access to community in in essence, in terms of friendships, peers, people that you can go to, to understand really you don't have to go it alone. I think more than just going to the gym or showing up to one of my dance classes or whatever interest or hobby that you have, I think it's important to really take that time and space to manage your balance that you have right? Uh, Wellness, it's not going to come from any particular organization or employer, but it's really what you need to give to you and what is that best combination for yourself. I think it was a peer also to the GWIC community, Lisa Beth, who had uh, once told me it's very much how you want to design your life and what are those critical components that need to be a part of it. And I think when she first mentioned that, I thought to myself, huh, you can do that, right? And for some reason, I think when you're in that that hurried pace of life and you're not taking out the time for that wellness to be a, a critical component, even if it is just to have a friend and a friend that you go for a walk with, right? To remember you're not alone and you really have to to be in the driver's seat of designing that life that you want, else life will happen and you don't want to burn out. You don't want to run into walls unnecessarily. We talked a little bit about the landmines, right? And life will be riddled with those. So very much trying to, to again, find peers, find uh, places in our compliance world. We are so I would say fortunate to have so many different community associations, professional groups, everything from the SECE to the ACI to the ABA, the acronym Alphabet Soup. There are regional, there are local business ethics networks, masterminds, communities that even focus on women like GWIC. And if you can't find one, I would say look to initiating a local chapter or in the case of the the DC compliance socials, create one. You need to be that driver to to achieve your own wellness. Right. No, designing your life is exactly the key, isn't it? We can be a creator of these opportunities, not just a consumer, although it's perfectly okay to consume (laughs) as well. Mm -hmm. I will confess, I, um, I started the year with great New Year's resolutions and intentions of spending more time with my friends, knowing that I wanted to design a life that, a life that way and reaching out as I, uh, to the community. But of course, a week or two in, <laughs> work mm-hmm. took over again. And I'm not going to mm-hmm. say much, but I allowed work to take over again. I designed that life again instead. And so I appreciate you underscoring that. Even personally, I, I recognize in myself, I need to do better when it comes to 
not accepting that 16 meetings a day is going to be the norm. There's a really no need for that. I need to carve out intentionally time for my family and my friends. And if any of my friends are listening, I'm coming for you. <laughs> but I will say, I'm going to ask the quick community to do me a favor as well, not for me, but for all of us, is mm-hmm. reach out to one of your friends because some of us are inadvertently just drowning in the day-to-day mm-hmm. and we need that catalyst. And you, my friend, have been the catalyst for me today to remind myself to design my life and to be proactive and intentional about that because the burnout will be no one's fault but my own if I don't take that opportunity so I really appreciate that this Mm -hmm. career it's really lovely and enjoyable and impactful but it really can suck you in so I'm absolutely for reminding us that we have the power also to put the cake down (laughs) yes something differently and I know that you have what I think must be a very therapeutic hobby as a thrower of pottery. Now, I've not heard that term before, thrower of pottery. So I wasn't sure if this was a fancy way of saying that you work with clay or is it literally the smashing of unwanting ceramics to the ground when you're frustrated? What is throwing a pottery, Angelique? So I know that folks can't see us, but I'm laughing <laughs> behind the scenes here. So coming to, to pottery, I also was thrown aback by what does it mean? You're throwing pottery, but it is a technical term when you are working on the wheel, right? Ah. If for those listeners that have seen uh, the movie Ghost, you will know what I'm talking about with the Person wheel. that came to mind. <laughs> yes. Sure, in our age, yes. maybe. <laughs> so I think for me, pottery has really been a hobby that has allowed for the mindset to continue to shift. It's as much a frustrating hobby as it is a hobby that has a meditative effect, right? It's the tension of building something organic, but also reminding yourself that you can hold on too tight to your piece, otherwise it will break, or you can't hold on to your breath because that also resonates into the clay and you also can't hold on to your need for perfection. It's this hobby that is both fast and it's slow and with its many contrasts you have to temper yourself and very much sort of spending that time on the wheel when you are again building something with your hands it's a very special connection that you form not only with yourself but also with your craft mm-hmm. so i can say i've i've not literally ever smashed any of my unwanted ceramics uh, again not intentionally <laughs> has it happened before 100 percent. oh I love that and again as you bring to me the beautiful imagery of the clay and the wheel and even that scene from ghost where you've got the lady on the wheel and then she's being comforted behind her by her lost partner it makes mm-hmm. me if all the ancestors we've got comforting us as we do this wheel right as, as you described it so beautifully so I know I'm not alone. <laughs> We've got generations of people behind us rooting for us. And absolutely community. No, I love that. Oh, I could spend all day talking to you, Tangeli. Uh, we'll have to spend more time together. But I'm going to ask you one last question and, and to close us out, which is what's the big bet you made on yourself and how has that shown up for you? I think for me, that big bet has been thinking a little bit about whether the path that we take is the right one. And Whether we admit that sort of out loud or internally, I think the answer is that we don't. Our our insecurities push us to make decisions that we think are based on guaranteed returns and with the least amount of 
risk, but I think that's unrealistic and it and it holds us back from pursuing our biggest dreams. Progress really requires striving, yes, for a better future. And I've had that in my career where I've moved so many addresses more times than I can recall, but my big bet really has been to seek out an interesting career and not let things hold me back or define me for too long. I think we all have this capacity within us to live so many lives and experiencing so many different challenges in the different countries that I've worked in and the as many hours as I can possibly compress into the span of a day to prove myself. I think all those trials and the scars have been worth it. It's been a rich life and I'm not done living my life. I have a brand new life that I'm creating for myself here in DC and one that I'm extremely optimistic and excited for. Oh, I can't say anything better to end this. That was wonderful. I'm so grateful to you for spending the time with us today. This will be one our bookmark for the ages. <laughs> and come back and listen again. But thank you so much for your time today. I look forward to seeing you in the community. And to our listeners, please reach out to us if you've got any questions. Katanjali is a wealth of knowledge and we've only just begun. Thank you so much, Emma. Thank you so much for having me as a guest. And I'm so thrilled for the brilliant year ahead and hearing so many more stories of great women in our field. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.